Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hey, friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivy podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a friend to join me and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Hey there, friends, and welcome to the last Friday of September. And boy, do we have a good show for you today. In fact, I'm warning you right now, this conversation might bring on the tears. Today on the show, Andrew Peterson is joining me. Andrew's a recording artist, a songwriter, author, and a really, really, really great storyteller. Andrew and his wife, Jamie, have been married for 24 years, and they have three big kids. And here's where the tears came in for me, you guys. I got teary-eyed when Andrew and I were talking about what it's like to send your kids off to college. But Andrew, in the most beautiful way, shares some great nuggets of parenting wisdom with so much authenticity. I know I'm going to have to listen to this story again and again and again. Before we get to the conversation, there's two fun things I want to tell you. Number one, you guys, have you heard our new show that my husband Aaron and I are hosting called On the Other Side? Well, today it's releasing its fifth episode in season one, and we've had some amazing conversations. If you love great stories, if you love redemption, if you love hearing people walk through hard things and point to Jesus, I want you to search this podcast. Search for On the Other Side with Jamie Ivey wherever you listen to podcasts. The second thing I want to tell you before we get to the show today is that my book, UBU, releases to the world in less than a week. Yes, we are in less than a week countdown over here. Next Thursday, it will be out into the world. I hope that you have taken some time to grab your copy. You can still pre-order the book and it will arrive to your front door on October 1st. Also, if you do pre-order, don't forget, we're having a really fun party next Wednesday night that you will be invited to after you pre-order and you redeem your pre-order goodies. Guys, I want to do something that feels a little weird because I don't think you should actually read the last two paragraphs of your book because you want people to read the whole book, but I'm going to read the last two paragraphs of the book. And I want to do this because I want you to know why I wrote this book. Here's what I want to leave you with at the end of this book. This is our challenge, to run with endurance the race that is set before us. He has a plan for your life, a great plan, a big plan, and he has given you everything you need to help you run your race well. He's given you the example of his only son and the enabling of his Holy Spirit. There is no reason to try convincing everyone how awesome you are or how much better you can do it. We're not running on competitive tracks. We're only running to hear the applause of our Lord and King telling us we shone his light and brought him glory. So my prayer for you as you continue your journey through this lifetime is that you would throw off anything, anything that is holding you down and that you would live freely as a woman who trusts in her maker and believes he can do priceless things through your life. Run confidently down these paths he has set for you and show everyone in sight what your God has done, what your God can do. Show them he's doing it right here, right now in you. And those last two paragraphs sum up what I want you to know after you read this book is I want you to believe that God has great things for you and he wants you to be you. You can get this book still wherever books are sold. Go to jamieivy.com slash UBU if you want any more information. And as always, as I've been telling you, if you want to text us, you can text UBU to 33777 and get all the details about the book. 
Okay, guys, enough announcements, enough waiting for you. Here is my conversation with Andrew Peterson. Also, you guys, we just start talking. So here we go. Jump right into our conversation. Now, are you in Tennessee native? No, we've been here 25, 24, I don't know, somewhere. Okay, a long time. Yeah. You had all your kids here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Where are you from? Like you grew up in that I grew up, I was born in Illinois and when I was seven, moved to North Florida. Okay. So I have to say North Florida. I actually was about to say, I've never heard anyone say North Florida. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Why? It's because Florida is like the most melting potty state. Part of the reason Florida is always in the news for being so weird uh-huh. <laughs> is I think because there are so many like distinct cultures that are all smashed up into each other there. So there's like the whole Miami thing uh-huh. with Puerto Rico thing, and that yeah. whole influence. Uh-huh. And then there's beach culture and party culture and retirement people culture and tourism culture. And everywhere in between that is deep South, yeah. old school, like Georgia type yeah. culture. So that's the part I grew up in. My dad and mom are both Florida natives. And so after he preached for 10 years or so in the Midwest, and it's where all of us kids were born, I moved from like these wide open cornfields and a place where nobody had an accent to finding myself in like the deep South, like thick accents, rural community and everything that comes with it. So it was very disorienting. The older I get, the more I realize what a serious effect that whole change of cultures had on my whole life. Like how, what it was, some of the effects that you've seen now as a well, grown man. Okay. So I don't want to get started on Enneagram stuff too much because we could talk about it for weeks. Okay. That's the thing. I, I used to hate it because anytime I was in a group of people and it came up, it was like, well, I guess that's what we're going to be talking about talk tonight. About. <laughs> and so I don't want to go too far down the road, but I'm a four on the Enneagram. And the thing about when I was reading Ian Cron's book about it, when I got to that chapter and it said that the four like is marked by this like suspicion that he or she is missing an essential element that everybody else has. So that when you walk into a room, you're terrified because you're like, everybody here has it together or mm-hmm. is cool in a way or, or knows something secret of life that I am cut off from somehow because I am so profoundly flawed. And so you ache to belong, yeah. but then you self-protect by leaning away and uh, kind of capitalizing on your uniqueness, mm-hmm. which is part of the reason so many artist types seem to be fours, uh-huh. you know? When I read that, I burst into tears because I'd never realized it about myself until I read it. And that is basically what it it was like to be a seven-year-old kid Mm. with no accent who was suddenly in school with all these kids in a small town where almost all of them were cousins. Mm. And, you know, there was like racism all of a sudden. There was like deep South stuff happening. Mm. And I was just like, what is happening here? And I was a pastor's kid, which that... Most pastors' kids carry a little bit of that self-consciousness. So anyway, I've always, when I think about my life, I tend to think of Illinois as this time of innocence and kind of like this wide open kind of childhood, like a Norman Rockwell painting. And then Florida was where I grew into my own sin in pretty awful ways and Mm. began to see how deeply the world was broken and how deeply I was broken. And it's this dark kind of jungly thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I so I the way I've joked about it is that it was like I was grew up in a Norman Rockwell painting and when I was seven I was thrust into a Flannery O'Connor short story okay. mm-hmm. with all of its kind of like craziness. 
So anyway, that's been one of the ways that I've tried to make sense of my own childhood and like what's going on with me. That said, we don't have time to talk about it, but I've made my peace with Florida in some really cool ways. And so, yeah, it's still weird. Yeah. I'm really thankful for it now. Because it seems like it pushed you into maybe some knowledge or some things sooner than you would have. You said you were discovered like your own sin and had to deal with that. I mean, Oh, yeah. I mean, it wasn't Florida's fault, you know? Right. Really? (laughs) I know. The combination of me being a mess and then being confused. My parents' accents came back too. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It was like, not only the kids in school had these thick accents, like I didn't understand what people were saying sometimes. That is so funny. But all of a sudden I'd look at my parents like, who are you all of a sudden? Because their accents drifted back in. And so anyway, there's this book called The Yearling Mm -hmm. by Marjorie Kennan Rawlings. And it came out in 1938 and won the Pulitzer Prize and was a big deal. It's about a kid who has a pet deer and the deer dies. And it's about, she lived about an hour from where we lived in Florida. And so she was this famous local author and there's a state park where her home was. My mom and dad were always like, you should read The Yearling. Mm -hmm. And there were no dragons in it. So I was just like, no way. What is this? Yeah, it's a deer. Also, the one place I want to escape from the most is Florida. Uh And I don't want to- Read about it. Read about it. It's like jumping from one jail cell to another. So- I didn't read it. And then my son read it when he was 12 and came and found me and told me that it was the best book he'd ever read. And I was like, hmm. And so I read the book and realized that what dies in the book is not just the deer. What dies is the kid's childhood. Mm. And that's really what the book is about. The yearling is a metaphor for the kid. And so when I realized that there was this book about Florida and this little boy who crashes into the brokenness of the world... It was like the Lord just zapped me and said, Mm. you know, this is for you to read right now at 40. This was several years ago. I'm an old man. (laughs) But at 40, I want you to read this and you're going to find a little bit of healing in it. And so it transformed the way that I saw Florida because she makes Florida seem so magical Mm. and wild. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is also part of God's creation. Yeah, I just was blind to it because of my own self-loathing. I, I want to ask you this, and I have no idea what you're going to say here, so this is not prepared. Okay. I didn't know you were a pastor's kid. My husband's a pastor. We are raising pastor's mm-hmm. kids. My husband was a pastor's kid. What was that like for you? You've already mentioned growing up, you got thrown into this new place. You felt different, all of the things. But you mentioned, and on top of that, I was a pastor's kid. Yeah. <laughs> what did that have? What did that have the effect on you as a child? One of the ways that it manifested itself in me. And I think looking back, it's partly because I had that longing to belong Mm -hmm. was that I was kind of embarrassed of it. Like all my other friends, their dads kind of did whatever. Mm -hmm. And as soon as somebody found out I was a pastor's kid, they would act different around me. Right. And so the way you fight that is that you act out. You, mm-hmm. It's like if they say a cuss word and then they apologize to me, then I'm like, oh man, I can, I can do that. this too. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so interestingly, my dad, and I hope it's okay that I share this. He retired a few years ago, so they can't fire him. There you go. <laughs> um, but when he moved from the church parsonage in the middle of the town, which is where we lived in uh, Lake Butler to, they finally were able to get a little farmhouse outside of town. Up, up until then, I had grown up in the house Right next to my bedroom backed up to the fellowship hall. So it was like very not private. Right. You're right there in the heart of everything. And that wears on you after a while. Um, mm -hmm. And so my mom and dad finally saved up enough to get this little farmhouse. And not long after that, my dad started smoking a pipe because he's a big C.S. Lewis fan, you know. And uh, even right now, he's probably sitting on his porch doing crossword puzzles and smoking his pipe while my mom quilts next to him. Uh So. Anyway, it does sound like right out of a Norman Walk, Rockwell it, it totally uh, painting. Is, yes. Yes. <laughs> Only zapped into the South. Yeah. And so 
it was interesting. I asked my dad, I was like, so, hey, have you ever gotten any flack for the fact that you suddenly have this, you know, uh, little habit? And he was like, actually, no. He was like, no, but I thought people would be so scandalized and nobody has minded. And in fact, I'm a part of conversations that I didn't used to be a part of. He was like, now that the town knows that the pastor isn't totally perfect and buttoned down, mm-hmm. then he was like, it, it improved my relationship with the men. Mm. Isn't that interesting? That's so interesting. And so there is this weird thing that happens when you're a pastor and you walk in, you carry yep. with you this kind of aura mm-hmm. that people act different about. And that's hard for a 13-year-old kid who yeah. just wants to fit in. Yeah. So that is what it was for me. And the other side of it was that, you know, I was a very nominal Christian, you know, was baptized when I was nine and didn't really ever have a reason to not be a quote-unquote Christian. Mm-hmm. I mean, you live next door to the Fellowship Hall. <laughs> yes. And so that it was, was and easy access. many advantages. <laughs> yeah. There was always a ping-pong table uh, <laughs> when I needed it. But it was weird. It was like the, the kind of cultural Christianity that I was a part of in the South. It felt very like sequestered. It was mm-hmm. kind of like there were part er, arenas of life where the gospel didn't really apply. And mm-hmm. then other, other arenas of life where the gospel was important. Mm-hmm. So I could turn it on and off like a light switch. I'd walk through the doors and I was the pastor's kid. As soon as I you know, went out with my buddies, I was somebody else. So yeah. that it was kind of like, I didn't really see a huge problem with drawing those dividing lines. And so one of the things that we've done, I'm not a pastor, but I've been in some kind of ministry for my whole life, is just making sure that our kids know that if the gospel matters at all, mm-hmm. then it matters when you're eating your cornflakes in the morning. It matters when we're watching movies. And you know, if we watch The Office, then mm-hmm. the gospel matters then, right? Yeah. So when we turn it off, we can laugh at it. But then we've also got to go, okay, does this really make, is this edifying? Right. And it can be, sure. Mm-hmm. But, but it's always worth it. It's an ongoing conversation. Whereas I feel like when I grew up, it was like, you know, our family tried to do devotions once in a while. Yeah. And it just felt so weird. It was like we were watching Magnum PI and then my dad would be like, it's now devotion time. And we'd be like, oh, now we're churchy. Now we're churchy. Mm -hmm. And it's like you had to switch the hat. Yeah. I think that's why my kids don't have the same baggage. I'm sure they have some kind of baggage, but I don't think they have that baggage. I think they know that like we grew up trying to like model the idea that the stories are actually true that we're telling Mm -hmm. and that they matter. And so they at least don't have that weird dissonance, cultural dissonance. I think that I see a lot of what you're saying and how my husband reacts to things. He grew up as a very independent Baptist conservative pastor's kid, and he felt that tension oftentimes. And so now as we parent our children, we're doing the same thing that, that, you know, the Peterson family sounds like they're doing is like, we want to help our kids know that church is not just on Sunday mornings, Right. that you know we are worshipful people all the time. I need to say really quick, I don't want it to sound like I'm throwing my parents under the bus. No, like they I did an amazing I, job yeah. with what they had. Uh-huh. And the world in the 80s was so completely different than it is here, especially in a little Southern town. So I want to make sure that it doesn't come across, in case they hear this. <laughs> Hello, <laughs> that, mom that, and like, dad. <laughs> yeah, I just don't want them to think, oh no, no Andrew no, no, thinks yeah. that we would have. Like, yeah. they, they did a fine job with what they had. You know? Here's what I've learned about parenting. A lot. <laughs> yeah, I've been. I've only been doing this for 16 years. But one thing that I always think about when I think about like my parents, or you think about your parents, and even my parents thinking about their parents, mm-hmm. is my favorite thing to see is when in 30 years I'll be able to look at my kids and be like, I did the best that I knew how at that time with mm-hmm. what I had to parent you. And hopefully, by the grace of God, my kids are going to be like amazing, and they're going to be like, my mom. I don't like the way she did that, so I'm going to do it differently, right, and sure. I'm going to applaud them. Like, yes, yeah. good. Mm-hmm. You mentioned this nominal Christianity. When did your faith become real for you? So there's a lot of ways to answer that question um, because it happens, you know, several times a day. 
I'm not just trying to be cool. I really do mean that like... Well, like, can I rephrase it then? Sure. Yeah, yeah. When did you feel more of, I want to be Andrew without having to switch the hats all the time? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, it was when, it was the year after high school and I was in a band, didn't want to go to college. Um, so I joined a band and was just like totally lost. Like it was weird because it was ostensibly a Christian band. There was this weird ministry that was a part of where we traveled around and played in high schools. And um, I was just kind of lost. And that was when it really came to a head that I began to realize that I couldn't lie Mm. to myself anymore. That it was like, okay, if I'm really into this for the girls in the rock and roll, Mm -hmm. I can't then pretend like it's about Jesus. Mm. Like that just was beginning to feel more and more wrong to me. And then the band broke up and that coincided with my encountering of the music of Rich Mullins. Yeah. And I've talked about this a zillion times, but, but hearing his music was like suddenly seeing a path through the dark woods. Mm. I was like, not only did he satisfy my snobbish opinions about art Mm -hmm. and music, I hated Christian music. So I was like, that divide that we were talking about earlier was part of the reason I never, ever would have considered the ministry because I was like, but everything I like is fantasy novels and comic books and movies and rock and roll. and, And then everything I don't like is this churchy stuff. Right. right? And so when I encountered his music, it was this sudden mashup Mm -hmm. of the two things. I was Mm -hmm. like, Oh, there's music that I love, but I also understood the language he was speaking. Cause when you grow up in the church, you are kind of being infused with scripture, whether you want to or not. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden I saw a way to be, Mm -hmm. does that make sense? Yeah. And the main thing was that he was this channel through which I began to realize that the stories were true and huge shocker to me. God loved me. Mm. And Rich talked about that a lot. And I was just like, it was what my heart needed to hear. I still need to hear and I still have a hard time believing Mm. that he loves me. So his music kind of broke through that barrier that I had up and gave me a purpose Mm. because like being purposeless is a a way of being hopeless. Mm. And so I just saw my life as this kind of giant waste of time. But as soon as I realized that God loved me and that I was uniquely gifted to tell people about that love with music or stories or whatever it was, I just like, I wanted, I was like a all in Forrest Gump when the, when the uh-huh. leg braces came off, yeah. you know, that's how I felt. I was like, I may stink at this, but I'm yeah. going to do it anyway. Yeah. And I just went for it. I feel like there could be a lot of people that could say that about Rich Mullins, that he opened the door for them to feel like they had a place yeah. in art. Yeah. And in the church even probably. I think so too. And I think that he didn't switch hats. Yeah. Like even in his sin, uh-huh. he was, even the conversations that he had in songs about his sin yeah. were aimed at God. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So there wasn't, in his mind, it was like all one yeah. big thing. Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting when I meet people who are huge Rich Mullins fans, I always feel like I know a little bit about them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because yeah. there, well, some people I know are like, I don't get it. What's the big deal? Right. And I think if your particular struggle was believing that God was real mm-hmm. and that he was a person mm-hmm. who was knowable and that he is, that he loves you the way that scripture tells us that he does. If those are your questions, then a good answer is the music of Rich Mullins. That's so great. Yeah. Has that overflown and bled into the work that you do? And like, he did that for you. Do you ever feel that kind of not weight, not obligation to do the same for the people who might engage in your art? Well, it doesn't feel like a weight or an obligation. It's a total thrill. It's like a joy for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess my question also, do you feel that I want to do for others yeah. the way I felt when I first heard Rich Mullins? Yeah, that's actually how I usually put it, which is that I remember being 19 years old and praying, God, if you will let me sing about you, that's what I want to do with the rest of my life. 
And if I can make someone's heart wake up to your love in the way that mm-hmm. his music did for me, then that's what I would like to do if you'll let me. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's not like all of a sudden I had a music career. Yeah, yeah. But it did give me this, it kind of adjusted my compass. It gave you and, that purpose. Yeah. And then the same thing happened with C.S. Lewis when I read the Narnia books to my kids. I had read them as a kid and loved them. But a whole different thing happened when I was reading them to my kids and I saw the gospel sneak into their hearts mm-hmm. and mine through those stories, I was like, oh yeah, I forgot how much I love these kind of right. stories. God, if you will let me tell stories that will make somebody else's heart feel this way, please let me do that. And yeah. so, yeah, as a nerdy artist, that's been a big, that was a huge relief to realize that there was a seat at the table of the kingdom of God for people who loved fantasy novels and music, you know? I didn't know that yeah. as a kid. Yeah. You didn't know you had a place. Mm. I've heard you before talk about how you believe that every person is created as a creative Mm -hmm. and that we can sometimes, I'm guilty of this for sure, of describing my family and saying, my husband's a creative and I have another son who's a creative and the rest of us, we're just normal people, I guess. (laughs) Grumble, grumble, grumble. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. But talk about that with me because um, I've heard you explain it and I understand what you mean, but I think it's a really great concept. Yeah. My main reaction to it is that it kind of makes it seem like artists are something more special somehow. And I just don't think that at all. Here's my struggle. And I think it also (laughs) lets you off the hook a little bit. Okay. That's okay. I'll give you that. That's what you're going to get to me because I sometimes feel like I look at Aaron and I'm like, you're so very creative. And I kind of, we think about creatives. I just did it. We think about these creative gifts and think those are really awesome. I wish I could do what they do. Sure. Wah, wah. This is me. But uh-huh. I think you're saying I'm getting off the hook. I'm saying so that tell there me. are things that you bring to your family mm-hmm. and to your church and your community that are like just as creative yeah. as anything your husband does. You just think about it differently. Mm. Like it may not be applauded in the way that yeah. the gifting that you bring is. Yeah. And I think that's unfortunate. So I think that, that elevating people as quote unquote creatives can like pushes that narrative too far. That's good. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And you've probably heard me talk about my wife. Mm-hmm. Like she's the like poster child for in some ways, the non-artist. Yeah. But man, like we're designing the rabbit room, this ministry yeah. we're a part of, is uh, renovating an old farmhouse just south of Nashville as kind of a gathering place for these kind of conversations. And so Jamie was the one who was like, if you guys will let me, I'd love to like be the designer yeah. or work with the designer. to uh-huh. connect. And every person who walks into that place is like, wow, it's so comforting and yeah. so whatever. And, and I just kind of like point at her. I'm mm-hmm. like, see, she doesn't think she's creative, but she's literally making, creating comfort. Yeah. She's literally creating a space for conversation. So that's my main point. I, and part of it is my own reaction to my own sin, because I remember when I first heard people say, you know, oh, are you a creative? Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm a creative, you know, I'm special. Like, <laughs> Which finally. is what you long for. Right. Yeah. Which has this like dark side, right? <laughs> right. And so when I heard that, I was now, once I snapped out of it, I was like, oh, that's not helpful. That's right. not helping anybody yeah. to, to create a class of people who are <laughs> yeah. somehow more creative than other people. That's just, I just fundamentally disagree with that. Mm-hmm. Like as children of God, as people who bear his image, yeah. like we are all called to add to the beauty of the world. And how is the question? Mm, I love that. And I often think about that when I catch myself. You guys, in January of 2024, I made a commitment to myself. I wanted to get stronger, which meant I needed to get in the gym, which means I needed to move my body in different ways. You guys know I love to walk, 
Well, it's spring and spring is the best time for us to start a new workout routine. It's our yearly collective warm up, and Peloton is here for everyone's yearly warm up. This is the best time to get into a good rhythm, to tap into your power and build towards your summer you. I love my Peloton. It accommodates to my schedule with a variety of class links to choose from. I can choose a 30-minute class. I can choose a 45-minute class. If you only have five minutes, there's literally a class to get you moving your body in five minutes. Peloton has a range of class types fit for every goal and every mood. There are classes if you want to hear country music, if you want to hear uh, rock, if you want to go back to the 80s. If you can't run, take a walking class. Need some grounding? Try yoga. If you want to level up, go for their Pilates or HIIT workouts. Here's what I love is that you can move at your own pace. And that is what I'm learning that my body needs right now. It needs to move at its own pace. Peloton makes the process easier with personalized recommendations and guided programs that take all the guesswork out of working out. You guys, we think about so many things during the day. Let's take the guesswork out. Let's jump right in and let's keep our fitness journey fresh every single day. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. I personally love a good 45-minute hip-hop class. It gets me moving. It gets me excited. It's my favorite genre of music, just ask my kids. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. I want to talk to you real quick about your book that came out last year, Adorning the Dark. My husband actually read it. When did this release? So I make sure I have my I story think straight. It's last fall. Yeah, last fall. So he read this on the beach in Mexico with our family, which yes. I just think anytime you read a book on the beach in Mexico, you mm-hmm. never forget the book because it's just beauty and everything. Sure. And he raved about this book, Andrew. I asked him what he loved about it. And he said, you're one of his favorite storytellers. Mm. And so he raved about the beauty that was in this book. And this isn't the only book. We, My kids and I watched you this summer. Mm-hmm. Read your books. Oh, you did. That's we awesome. did. We would log in. Wing Feather Saga. It's four. It's a four. Yes, mm-hmm. for book. Yeah. And did I hear that it's getting made into a movie? We're working on it, yeah. We made a short film that you can watch on Amazon and YouTube and stuff. It's like 15 minutes yeah. long. And that has been the thing that's begun the conversations with the studios. So it's not a done deal yet, but we're like well down the road of pushing the ball down. Well, the congrats, because Thanks. I know that has to be exciting. I sure hope it happens. To yeah. see your work, yeah. So I just want to tell you about the things you're doing. But I have this question for you. The other day I saw on your Instagram, you were, this was just a few days ago, you were dropping off your daughter at the airport <laughs> to head out of town to, is she a worship leader? Song, Songwriter. Singer-songwriter? Okay. Songwriter. She was going out to do a gig mm-hmm. out of town. Yep. She's 19. 17. 17. Oh my gosh, my heart. I noticed that with your three kids, a lot of them are doing some of the same in the same vein lane as you. Mm -hmm. 
What is raising three kids in a home where you value this creative spirit and you value great art? Like I know there's a piece in your book about like discerning and it cracked me up because I read that your daughter one time was like, I'm going to put this CD in and it was like the most cheesy Christian (laughs) CD and like before you could stop her, she already had it in the CD player and then she didn't like it and you were like... Yes. She said, can we just listen to Alison Krauss instead? And I was like, a great parenting moment. You're like, yes. my work is done here. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I have done yeah. my job. But talk a little bit about just like you've raised, I mean, you're about to send your last kid off. What does that even feel like? Because I'm two years away from sending my first off and then I'll have oh, yeah. three more after that. And so honestly, here's what I feel. So maybe this will be you talking me off the ledge here. Yeah. I feel like I can't believe our time is up. There's that. I also feel like, man, I think there's 800 more lessons I need to teach. And I have two years, so I could probably get in, you know, four or five a day and and make it. But it's this feeling of, did we do enough? How are you and your wife, Jamie, dealing with about to send off your last one? Yeah, it's very different than sending off the first one, I'll tell you. The first one, I was way more of a mess. On the other hand, the two boys are the oldest. and This is my first daughter to send off. You know, so I have a feeling I'm going to be a mess all over again. That makes it sound like my middle kid. I didn't care. No, That's not I, true. it's not true at all. But the thing that comes to mind is that Aiden, when he, when we were dropping him off at Lipscomb University here in Nashville, he's an artist. So he wanted to be an animation major. Mm-hmm. So he's about to graduate, is doing amazing work. And we were packing him up the night before to leave. And I could not stop crying. And the main source of my tears, it was this feeling that I had not done enough. Mm-hmm that I had missed it somehow that, you know, I travel a lot for my job. So I was like, all those gigs, you know, my son was, you know, my one chance to be a dad (laughs) of this kid. And I'm, you know, I was in, you know, wherever Iowa doing a show. And then I started thinking about all the things I'd done wrong. Then I started thinking about all the nights that I was home, that my wife and I were watching Netflix while he was upstairs drawing. And I was like, you're going to make me start crying. Are you kidding? Like, why would I watch a a TV show when I've got this, you know, image bearing child of the king that's in my, so all of these voices are kicking around in my head. And I just was so full of mainly regret. Mm. I was just kicking myself for so much. And of course I I was like hugging him and Aiden was kind of like, dad, pull it together. Like (laughs) you're a good dad. It's okay. Like, you know, and Jamie was like, Andrew, you're a good dad. And Sky, Asher, you're a good dad trying to convince me, you know? And I was like, no, I'm not, you know, wiping my (laughs) nose. And then we went to the school the next day to move him in. And of course I was just like walking around sad the whole time. And other parents were crying, and I'd say, where are you guys from? They'd be like, California, what about you? And I'd say, just 20 minutes down the road. <laughs> and so it was pathetic. And so everybody that I talked to that I knew said the same thing. They were like, Andrew, we know your kids. We know you're a good dad. Don't yeah. beat yourself up. None of it helped until I bumped into Brown Bannister. Do you know Brown? Mm-mm. So Ellie Holcomb's dad, oh, yeah, yeah. he okay. teaches at Lipscomb. He produced Amy Grant's records, okay. and he's a legend uh, in town. And just the gentlest, most pastoral soul. Yeah. And I bumped into him, and uh, he was like, oh, hey, Andrew, how's it going with the dropping your first off? You know, And I, would, I, started crying. I was like, I just feel like I've just messed everything up, all the mistakes. And he laughed, and he said, oh, I remember feeling that same thing. Man, it has been so cool to see the way the Lord has redeemed all my mistakes. And there it was. There was this, that was like the zinger that I needed because I was like, oh, he didn't let me off the hook. Yeah. He didn't, he say, didn't say, oh, you're a great dad. Oh, you're dad. a great dad. He agreed with me. Like, mm. oh, yeah, sure. Why are you shocked that you <laughs> have regrets or yeah. that you made mistakes? Like, yes, you were going to have regrets. Oh, that's good. The cool thing, according to this 60-year-old man, was watching the way the Lord redeems and untangles the knots that we tied and makes beautiful 
you know, our worst mistakes. Isn't that mm. better news? Isn't that what we that's want? That's the gospel. Yes. Right? That's the heart of the gospel in yeah. so many ways. So just like, that's what I would encourage you to do. And any parent out there is like, if you're, if regret is what you're plagued with, like let yourself off of the hook and hold on for dear life while you watch the story the Lord is going to mm. tell about his glory mm. and his fatherhood through your mistakes and your, you know, selfishness. All and the things that we everything do. Everything else. Yeah. yeah. And they're, they're the Lord's kids, you know. It's true. Okay. The regrets. What about yeah. what I'm feeling of? I feel like it's really weird that God would allow our kids, you know, there's different stages when they're younger, it's just like draining and it's just physically draining. And then middle school, you're kind of like, what's wrong with you? Like, use your head. And then like they get to high school and all of a sudden you wake up one day and you're like, gosh, I like you. Mm -hmm. Can we hang out? Like, can we go get sushi? Can we go to the movie? Like, gosh, I like you. And that happens. And then they leave. I'm like, it's just like God. So that was your regret. How have you dealt with, and I know you sent your oldest 20 minutes away, but right. yeah. it's still the same. How have you dealt with developing a new relationship with your kids on the other side of them living with you? We have tried to make sure, and this is a lot of this is Jamie's doing, is that we wanted our house to be the cool house to hang out in. Mm-hmm. So anytime Aiden would come home with his roommates or his college buddies, even if we were like in the middle of something, we would just be like, nope, it's worth it to pause everything wow. we were doing. Mm-hmm. Jamie would bake some cookies and we would get out of their way. And so we tried really hard to make sure that they knew that if they wanted a place to hang out, our house is one of them you're welcome yeah. to. And so that's led to these like friendships with their friends, you know, yeah. which has been very cool to get to know them as people, not mm-hmm. as these punk teenagers. Yeah. You know? And so that's their world, you know, like friends are hugely important. So that's been part of it. And for me personally, I haven't shared this story. Let's do it right here, Andrew. But I'm going to do it. Breaking news, people. I'll probably drive home from here and text you to delete it. (laughs) Okay. But one of the things that happens is you transition from, you know, ideally this happens to some degree the whole time, but you transition from being the one teaching your kids to being the one that's learning from them. Mm. And so you kind of like, you decrease as they increase Mm. and you begin to watch them grow into who they're going to be. And I didn't know how to be peers with Mm. my kids, mainly because I admired them so much. And I thought if I hang out with them as friends, they're going to be disappointed in me. And, um, and it's easier for me to kind of like do that for thing and hold mm-hmm. myself aloof to self-protect rather than enter in and risk being known and disappointing them, yeah. that kind of thing. So I realized one day that Aiden and I were, Aiden texted me, which this is amazing. He texted and said, hey, you want to grab coffee? And I was like, sure. And immediately full of anxiety because mm-hmm. I was like, I'm good at hanging out with my kids in groups. But as soon as it's one-on-one, I feel this kind of like fear of vulnerability and I just want them to like me as much mm-hmm. as I like them. I just yeah. want to be like, I don't want my own stupidity to get in the way of this relationship. And so I was so scared. And so we had our conversation and it was fine. And, but I felt nervous, which is so weird. It's mm-hmm. like, I'm 40 something talking to this really sweet 20 something year old kid. And I'm just like, could barely be yeah. myself. So I texted him when I left and I sat in the car and I was just like, Hey, I just want you to know if you ever think I act weird in this situation, it's because I just want to be a good dad and a good friend to you. And I sometimes I'm afraid that you're going to know me and then realize that I'm not all I'm cracked up to be and all of this stuff. And I just poured myself out in this thing. And then Aiden texted back. I sat there in the car watching the little dots of doom, you know, yeah. and he texted back this amazing kind of like Brown Bannister, like this gospel infused text that just said, I know you, like, I know 
I'm going to start crying. I, I know the childhood you had. I know the pain that you've carried with you. Like, I'm not surprised by any of it. And I like you. He said, I like Andrew Peterson mm. in the text. <laughs> and uh, I just sat there boohoo crying. Yeah. And so there's this, you know, we talk about this a lot with parenting, Jamie and I do, but like, it's one thing for your kids to know that you love them. It's another thing for them to know that you like them. Mm. And it, arguably the like is more important, you know? Like a kid will feel more loved if they know they're liked. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. And so, and I really think that we as humans are most ourselves when we, in those, those rare moments when we truly believe that God loves us mm-hmm. and likes us. And certain people make us feel that, right? So I light up around somebody that I know likes me for who I am. And I feel like, oh, this is who Andrew's going to be one day yeah. all the time. Mm-hmm. And so hearing those words from my little boy kind of saying, you don't have to be perfect. I like you as you are, mm-hmm. was like the voice of the Lord. Isn't that an amazing reversal of roles yeah. that the son tells the father that he loves him with the father's love? Yeah. <laughs> like it, it just kind of blew my mind. So I saved the text and I have to remind myself of it regularly. Yeah. But I think after that moment, I realized that I needed to just be brave yeah. and just step into friendship with these amazing yeah. humans. Yeah. I think it's interesting that we could be grown adults and you know, just this is the first time you and I have ever met, but you've said a handful of times, like it is vulnerable for you to be in a room and wonder what are they going to think about Andrew Peterson or does God like me and having these situations. And it's like, God is sending you all of these like little messages throughout your entire life to be like, you were liked and you were loved and you were known. And when you just said, you know, our kids, they know that we love them, but they want to know that we like them. I thought, I'm the same, that me too. I want to feel liked and loved. And so it's, thank you for your parenting advice. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, we're so close, but you know, it's so funny. You mentioned you haven't sent off your third one and it's different. I was telling a girlfriend the story the other day when I sent my first to kindergarten, cried, you know, like Mm -hmm. I walked into the door and I was all like tough and strong. And then I got in the car with my husband and just bawled, right? And then we sent another one to kindergarten and another one. And then our fourth one and Andrew my husband and I were out of town and my babysitter took her to to kindergarten. (laughs) So it was kind of like the progression of, okay, you'll be fine. You're going to make it. Uh, We've done this before. I have one more question to ask you about music. I got your bio sent to me and this is in your bio and I love it. Are you ready? I'm so nervous. Don't be. Here it is. She's talking about you and it says, refusing artistic compromises that so often come with chasing album sales and radio singles. Instead, creating a long line of songs that ache with sorrow, joy, and integrity, and that at the end of the day are part of a real ongoing human conversation. Those two separate ways of being a musician and being in the music industry, we see two distinct ways. I think my question for you is, how much more difficult is it for you to stay true to, I want to have the conversations that are part of real ongoing human conversations mm-hmm. in your songwriting and in your book writing versus the easier way of just writing a song that maybe mm-hmm. would be more like a Nashville song or whatever. Do you battle that or is it more in your personality to, to stick it, to not want to have anything to do with that and to want to stay in your lane? Or That's more. That's the, you more. So it is an easy choice for me. Okay. I couldn't sleep at night if I didn't feel like the stories I was telling were true to, and, you know, lumped into that as the aesthetic of the way that I'm telling the Mm -hmm. stories didn't feel true to me. It's kind of like when, when I was reading the Wingfeather books Mm -hmm. last spring, all this 
was starting. It's crazy. Can't believe we're still in it. Anyway, right. I remember thinking about this when I was reading him aloud because when I, my first draft of the books, before I, I was so scared to send it to my editor the, for my first publishing deal uh-huh. that I edited the tar out of it. I just kept yeah. trying to rework it. And one of the last things I did was to read the book aloud to myself alone. Mm-hmm. So I sat in my office and just read it aloud to make sure that it felt like did I was you writing do accents? It. Yes. Good. I did it all in a British accent. <laughs> okay. And so I read it to myself. And I think that's the thing is like you want the songs that you write mm-hmm. to feel like you're saying it in the way that you, you would, would say, say the thing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, anytime I have like thought, oh yeah, I want to try to write a country song. Mm-hmm. Like I remember, yeah, every now and then I'll have a friend who knows somebody and I'll be like, oh, I'll try to write a song for so-and-so. It just, the clothes don't fit. Yeah. I just don't, I don't love music because music is so great. Like I love music because music was the means through which mm. I came to know who God was. So it's like there's this great C.S. Lewis illustration called The Illustration from a Tool Shed where he's talking about big, complicated ideas. I was holding on for dear life when I read the essay, but I thought about it through the lens of art that he talks about. Imagine yourself walking into a tool shed. You see that the roof is rusted through and it's all shadowy in there, but the sun is coming through the little coals in the roof mm-hmm. and you see these beams of light coming down. And they're beautiful. And you see the little motes of dust floating around. You can walk around them and behold the beams of light. That's like loving music, right? But what C.S. Lewis says is to come stand in the beam and then look up along the beam and you can see through the hole in the roof the trees outside and the blue sky Mm -hmm. and the source of the light. Mm -hmm. And so that to me is like from the rabbit room to the books that I'm reading to the songs that I'm writing. It's not that I want the music to be just like a, you know an unartistic avenue to something. I think the very artisticness of it is part of the way you put a chink in people's armor, Mm. right? And so that's what I'm interested in, is beckoning people into the beam. Like, yes, you can look at this. As a song, it's beautiful. I love music. It's all great. But to me, it's real exciting thing comes when you convince someone that there's a world outside. Mm, To look uh, at the source. Yeah, does that make sense? That makes really good sense. And so to me, it's like all songwriting is so difficult and book writing is so difficult. Like it does not come naturally, probably to anybody, but I feel especially, like it's especially tough for me. So I put it off as long as possible. When I really dig into writing a song or I feel like I've got a song idea, the thing that's driving it is what's on the other side of the song, Mm. not just, wouldn't it be cool to write a song and get rich, you know? (laughs) Right. Like, who wants to live that life? This is why God did not make me a songwriter, because I'd be like, wouldn't it be cool to write a song and get rich? (laughs) I won't care about the source or the anything. It's like the uh, in The Fiddler on the Roof when he was like, you know, he says something about how, like, Money is bad for you, but Lord, <laughs> let, let it happen. Me, yeah, Give me exactly, money. Yeah. I can't remember the quote. It's funnier when Tevia says it. But it's not like I'm avoiding. Like there are songs that I've written that have done well, and yeah. I'm super thankful. But I don't think that that that's enough to make yeah. me want to go to the yeah. trouble of doing it. I'm mm-hmm. a little mystified by people who do because mm-hmm. man, it's the magic that happens when you unlock that window mm-hmm. and connect with someone and and you you're both experiencing something together like the person on the stage and the people in the audience you can feel the air change in the room that is like i mean art is the only i can think of that does that Mm -hmm. and songs are like a super a three-minute compression of that idea yeah like movies two hours you know you go on a long journey Mm -hmm. but a song is three minutes can change your whole life yeah Andrew, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Really a joy to sit down with you. Our whole family appreciates all the things that you have your hand in. And thanks for your parenting advice, too, for this mama almost sending her first kid off to college. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. 
Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. You guys, I had tears in my eyes. I had tears in my eyes when Andrew shared about parenting his big kids. I just honestly can't believe how close I am getting to sending off our oldest into the world. But I'm going to take Andrew's advice to heart and the wisdom of Ellie Holcomb's dad that God redeems all the mistakes and lack I brought to the table parenting these humans. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Today's show was edited and mixed by the team at Podshaper, and the music was developed for the show by Matt Graham. Show notes, which have all the information if you ever miss anything in a show, are written by Abigail Castell. The whole thing is organized by Lindsay Sweeney. Friends, enjoy your week. Enjoy your weekend. Here we are. Share the show with a friend. Have a happy hour with a friend. And next Wednesday, we have a special show where my husband, Aaron Ivey, is going to be the host. He's turning the tables. He's interviewing me for the happy hour. That's right. If you've got a question for me about UBU, now's the time to ask. Text UBU to 33777 to get all the details about how to pre-order my book, which comes out in six days. You can also send me your questions there too, guys. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.